go and have a seat. Uh, Get your Bibles out. Turn to the book of Daniel as we continue through our sermon series in the book of Daniel. Daniel chapter 5 is where we're going to find ourselves here uh, this morning. And as you're turning to Daniel chapter 5, if if you've ever found yourself, and I won't ask why or for a show of hands, but if you've ever found yourself inside a courtroom, uh, you know that being in a place like that uh, can be a very intimidating uh, place to be. And so whether you're there on trial or you're watching someone who's on trial, or maybe it's a traffic ticket. And not always are you in court for bad things. I've been in court multiple times for good things, uh, for the finalization of adoptions. You were like, wait, what's he about to say? But, um, right. Sometimes they're good things, but that room and that presence before a judge can be very, very intimidating because that judge is going to make a determination that's going to have a great bearing, a great impact upon your life and maybe other people's lives for many years, maybe even the entirety of your lifetime or even multiple generations. And so that judge wields a lot, a substantial amount of power and that becomes intimidating And so in as much as any human judge has some level of power, we recognize and realize that God, the ultimate judge, has infinitely more power. And God is not flippant about his role as judge. It's not something that he's casual about, but that God Almighty sits on the throne as the judge of all things and of all people. Now, loved ones, listen to me. Let me just get right to the point right out of the gate here this morning. The reality is, is every single one of us is going to stand before judgment before God Almighty. And that thing is going to play out one of two ways. You are going to hope that God is blind to all of your inadequacies and insufficiencies and failures and shortcomings, which let me just tell you, that's not going to be the case. And you're going to have to stand and bear the weight and the brunt of his judgment. Or that judgment can fall upon another. Namely, Jesus. Who will take your place and in my place before that judgment seat, that judgment throne and bear our wrath. See, what God's word is going to lead us to this morning is this idea right here. That God judges our arrogance and our rebellion against him. God judges our arrogance and our rebellion against him. And we're going to see an account of a king uh, and God's response to this king and his arrogance and in his rebellion, that God's response to this arrogant and rebellious king is to bring judgment upon this arrogant and rebellious king. Now, let me just warn you right out of the gate. Before we begin to read any of this, before we pray, this is just my preface or caution to us up front. This text, if you've read ahead, you already know this. This chapter, this account has a very hard edge to it. There is a strikingly harsh tone that drives through Daniel chapter 5. And, and I think it's important for us, right? Our desire is we want to preach faithfully God's word. Um, but part of that is being willing to, to embrace the tone and the tonal quality of the text. So listen to me. Hear me when I say this. Church, I love you. I do. I love you. And I want what is best for you. There will be points in today's message where you're like, it doesn't feel like you love me. That's really painful. I love you. But we are going to let the harsh, just demanding, brutal reality of this text drive how we preach. Amen. Amen. All right. I'll tell you what, let's do this. Let's pray. <clears throat> 
Let's pray before we go any further. Um, and as we pray, I just, I'll just ask you, man, my throat is killing me. I'm losing my voice. So as we pray, you can pray for me. I don't know, maybe you're going to pray that God would take my voice away. You're like, take that. You want to be harsh? You're going to be silent. Okay. Uh, but why don't I, we're going to pray for God to open our eyes and our ears. And just in humility, I'll ask you, man, I need you to pray for me because I just don't have a lot to offer. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, as we come before you, God, we thank you. God, we thank you that you are the ultimate judge and that you're a good judge. You're a fair and right and just judge. God, we thank you that we can trust your judgment. We can trust your decrees because we can trust you to always do what is right. So God, as we read and as we uh, see and work through this account, God, we ask that you would help us to, to, to embrace the truth of what's here. God, some of the hard edges, <clears throat> some of the difficult things, God, would we not fight against those, would we not push against those, but would we embrace your good judgment, your fair and just judgment that we see in Daniel chapter 5. God, as always, we want to pray for another church in the area. God, this morning I pray for just my good friend, Michael Kelshaw, and for Trinity in the marketplace. I thank you for just that faithful brother and what a, what a presence, what a strong presence uh, he is uh, in the metro area. Thank you for his faithful ministry. Thank you for Trinity in the marketplace. God, we pray you'd be with our brothers and sisters there this morning and that you would be honored and glorified uh, in their gathering as well. God, give us eyes to see, give us ears to hear, and help us to embrace all that you have for us here this morning. And we pray this in your name, Lord Jesus. Amen. All right, well, Daniel 5, title of the message this morning is Rebellious Heart, Righteous Judgment. Rebellious Heart, Righteous Judgment. And th those are really the two uh, dominating themes that unfold in this account, in this uh, text. And those will be the two themes, only two points uh, in the sermon. If you're sitting here like, oh, two points, this will be quicker. It's never quicker. Sometimes I feel like two points go longer. So you're not getting out early, I'm sorry. Uh, but just understand that there's two points to the sermon uh, here this morning, coming directly out of the text. And the first half, verses 1 through 16, is we see this rebellious heart toward God, right? A rebellious heart towards God manifested in the king. Now, before I even read, let me just give a little context, uh, because where we ended last week, just this beautifully redemptive story of Nebuchadnezzar, and, and he's arrogant and proud, and God humbles him, and he comes to his senses, and just has this beautiful posture before God, um, <clears throat> And then the beginning of chapter 5 says, King Belshazzar made a great feast for a thousand of his lords and drank wine in front of the thousand. And so we know a couple of things right off the bat. We're dealing with a different ruler. Time has elapsed uh, between chapter 4 and chapter 5. In fact, uh, what's not obvious to us right away, though, if you begin to dig into historical uh, records, you realize we're probably 20, 25 years down the road. Uh, which will make sense when we get to some other things where uh, Belshazzar isn't thinking of Daniel. But this is probably 20 to 25 years that have elapsed since what we saw in chapter 4. Further, it'll make references to Nebuchadnezzar being Belshazzar's father. And the reality is that word is, it, it kind of has a, a, a multitude of meanings that it could be in Hebrew. It's, it's more likely a predecessor. Multiple kings have reigned between Nebuchadnezzar and Belshazzar. And Belshazzar isn't truly reigning. He's actually co-reigning with his father. His father is out fighting the Persians. And if you've read ahead, you know that his reign ends tonight. 
That this account in Daniel chapter 5 is not only the last day of his reign, it's the last day of his life, um, as the Persians are going to take over. Now, one of the things that's really fascinating is up until the 1800s, there were no extra biblical records that had the name Belshazzar anywhere else outside of the scriptures. And in fact, it became something... um, that a number of people began to question the authenticity of the book of Daniel. They said, well, we can't find any other records. We think this is a made-up figure. We can't really trust the scriptures because, look, we've got guys that no other historical record points to. Until you get to the 1800s and the British explorers uh, rolling around uh, what was... Babylon, uh, back then now, uh, present-day Middle East, Iraq, Iran area, and came across a number of scrolls where he first discovered, oh, wait, this is the same guy that they're talking about in Daniel chapter 5. Why would I even tell you this? Well, I think this is really important for us to just be reminded that God's word is inerrant. And just because we don't have every little bit and every little detail and every little historical fact, listen, there's going to be plenty of things that you and I are never going to know about uh, this side of eternity. Some things will never be revealed this side of eternity. But we don't have to fear what is found. We don't have to fear where it's like, well, we, we don't see anything else outside of the scriptures on this person because what always happens is as we find things, they only serve to further strengthen what the biblical record has already told us. So we don't have to fear that stuff. We can lean right into it uh, because we can trust God's word. And so here, chapter 5, Belshazzar has this great feast. And and you've already heard me mention, well, wait, if his kingdom and his reign is going to end that night, the Persians must be knocking on the door, which they were. Why in the world are they throwing a huge party if the Persians are gathered right outside the city gates? Well, we don't know for sure. Uh, A couple of reasons could be that they didn't know Babylon was a huge city, and maybe they're throwing a feast in a different part of where they came in. Um, And and so that could be an explanation. It's, It's that's not necessarily likely, uh, but it's possible that the Persians or that the Babylonians just thought, hey, we're in a well-fortified city. They're not going to be able to penetrate the walls. We're fine. Let's live it up. We'll go fight tomorrow. Or it is also possible, possible, but not probable that they're thinking, hey, we're doomed. Let's live it up one last day and then we'll all go die tomorrow. We don't know. Suffice to say they're having this huge party. And then notice in verse 2 and following, we're told some specifics of the party and more specifically about about Belshazzar and his, uh, really just his rebellious heart towards God. Verse 2 tells us this, Belshazzar, when he tasted the wine, commanded that the vessels of gold and silver that Nebuchadnezzar, his father, had taken out of the temple in Jerusalem, be brought that the king and his lords, his wives and his concubines might drink from them. So these are the vessels when they took the people of God into captivity that they looted from the temple, brought back to Babylon. He's like, hey, go get all of those things that we took from from the Jewish people when we when we looted the temple and let's get drunk drinking out of their stuff. Verse 3, then they brought in the golden vessels that they'd taken out of the temple, the house of God in Jerusalem, and the king and his lords, his wives and his concubines drank from them. Verse 4, they drank wine. I mean, this is just insane right here. And praised the gods of gold and silver, bronze, iron, wood, and stone. So they're praising everything and everyone except the God who these items belonged to. There's a rebellious heart toward God. Here's the first thing we see in these first four verses is that a rebellious heart mocks God. A rebellious heart is a heart that will mock God. I mean, this is a blatant mockery, a blatant contempt 
of God Almighty. And, and what would be shocking to the early reader, the initial readers of this, is, is that they would have known what was going on with the Persians, but they would have also known all the things that had unfolded while the people of God were in Babylon. They would have known about Daniel and his visions and the interpretations of those. He would have known about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the fiery furnace and how God had, had, had preserved them and cared for them. Like they had seen all the ways that God had shown himself powerful to them. And yet here this king is so brazen toward God. And really it's an attitude that's, that's, that is screaming, I am in control, God is in control, and you could even argue that Belshazzar has in his mind, I hold God literally in my hand. As I hold this cup that was meant to be used in worship and honor of that God, now I hold you in my hand and I control you. It's a heart that mocks God. And it'd be easy for us to look at these first four verses, just kind of shake our head and be like, this guy's an idiot. Yet I would suggest to you, listen to me, loved ones, I would suggest to you that there are um, subtle uh, but very, very uh, insidious ways that you and I rebel and mock God in our lives as well. And the forms and the manifestations in your life, they, they don't look necessarily the same way that they do for uh, Belshazzar and those gathered at the feast, but understand that they are equally, a, equally heinous and offensive as to what we see here. So let me give you five. Here's five ways, uh, and we could certainly do more than five, uh, but five ways we mock and rebel against God. First of all, it's what we see Belshazzar doing here is that you and I think we're in control. You mock God, you rebel against God, when you think that you're truly in control of your life. I mean, that's what Belshazzar thinks. I'm in control. I have the power. See, when you and I think, I mean, in the book of Daniel, has it not hammered this point home already? We'll see it again next week. Daniel in the lion's den right, is hammering home this reality that God is in control. And, and to suggest anything otherwise is to suggest that God is not really sovereign and that God does not really rule. It's a mockery of God. It's rebellion against God. And of course, what we saw last week with Nebuchadnezzar, and we're actually going to see it again this week, the, what Daniel hammers out over and over and over again is that God is going to humble us until we know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. That's going to happen to Belshazzar here in a few verses. Right, but we mock and rebel against God, and we think we're in control. Secondly, when we worship idols. Ah... Uh, Mike, I don't have any idols. Are you sure about that? I'm willing to bet you don't have a little statue that sits on your living room mantle that you burn incense to or you bow down to or pray to or worship. I'm guessing uh, most, if not all of us, don't have that issue. But I would seriously question as to whether or not you and I don't have idols because idols are everywhere. And you and I can create an idol out of anything. And if we're not careful, uh, we, we can find ourselves worshiping, worshiping them quite quickly. So think of an idol like this. An idol is anyone or anything that would replace Jesus' rightful place in my life. So it's anyone or anything that I would find my source of joy or hope, uh, my identity, my security, my love, my passion, any of those things. If I find them in anyone or anything outside of the person of Jesus, you have an idol. And what becomes really, really disturbing about an idol is when we worship an idol, what we're really saying is, Jesus, I love you, you're fantastic, but you're not enough. The gospel, man, that's glorious and it's great, but it's not enough. 
So I need my family. I need my career. I need money. I need sex. I need health. I need status. I need whatever it is to complete what you, Jesus, and the gospel is lacking in. That is deplorable and disgusting that we would think these other things could do for us what Jesus and the gospel can't. And so it is. It's a mockery of God. It's a rebellion against God. When I put items that in a place in my life that's reserved solely for Jesus. Number three, <clears throat> ways we mock and rebel against God. Right, all of a sudden the king doesn't look so foolish, right? You're like, oh man, this struggle with some of the same things. Uh, number three, we're not submitted, listen, to the whole of the scriptures. Did you hear that? That, that word's important. We're not submitted to the whole of the scriptures. See, if you and I treat God's word in a way or in a manner that's similar to how you and I would treat a buffet, we've got issues. Because you go to a buffet and what do you do? The things you like, you put a lot of that on your plate. And the things that are okay, you put a little bit of that on your plate. And then the things you're like, I just don't want anything to do with that. Like that never goes on your plate. So like if you ever go to a salad bar, the celery's always full. I'm pretty sure they put that out there in the morning. It's purely decorative. No one eats that. Right? But then there's other things that are constantly getting replaced because we like that. <clears throat> you see, all of the Bible is God's word to us, and all of the Bible is binding on your life and in my life. Not just the parts that I like, not just the parts that I agree with, or that I think are good or that I want to come under. So if you were here a number of years ago, it's probably four years ago, I, at the end of a message, I used a, a pretty pointed illustration. We're preaching out of Second uh, Timothy around the scriptures and the inerrancy and sufficiency of God's word. And I had a Bible up here to try to illustrate this principle. And so I took this other Bible and I was talking about it. And then I began to rip pages out of it. And if you were here, right, you might even remember, I mean, there was just this visceral response in the room. And the first time I did, I mean, it was this, this collective, <gasps> And you just, the, the, the air got sucked right out of the room. Did he really rip pages out of a Bible? Can't believe what's going on here. And, but, but listen, it was such an easy and tangible way for us to see just how horrendous and offensive this is. And yet what I would argue is that has nothing. Ripping pages out of a book has nothing on you and I actually approaching the scriptures in a manner and a way where I'm going to pick and choose what I want to obey. And I'll pass on the things that I don't like or that I don't agree with. That's a mockery and a rebellion against God when we do that. So I'm submitted to the whole of the scriptures, not just parts or pieces. Number four, kind of wrestle with how to frame this, but here's what I'll explain here in a moment. But ways we mock and rebel against God, we believe that we're self-sufficient. We believe we're self-sufficient. I mean, we live in this stuff. Man, this is America to the core. But here's what I was wrestling with. Do we frame it? Do I frame this in a positive way or a negative way? Um, here's the inverse of this, or here's how this is manifested. It's a life of prayerlessness. A prayerless life is a self-sufficient life. A prayerful life is a dependent life. One of the things we love to say around here is that prayer is the evidence that I believe the gospel. Right, when, 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 and that just bears. It doesn't save me, right? Prayer doesn't save me. Prayer doesn't make me right with God. It just proves that I know that I need Him. So I'm like, I can't do this. Help me. Walk with me. I need wisdom. I need insight. I need leading. I need direction. I need you to help me. 
That's very, very different than, no, I, I don't need any of that. I got this on my own. It's a mockery. To suggest to God, I don't need you. I mean, nothing could be further from the truth. We believe we're self-sufficient. Here's the final one. Is that we mock God's bride. Take shots at the church. Now, I have in mind, don't read into this. I'm not trying to pinpoint someone who said something negative about faith church, but I want to do it in a passive aggressive way. I'm just aggressive. I'd go right to that person. Okay. Um, so that's not what I'm talking about here. I have the universal church in mind and far too many of us are far too guilty of taking shots at the church. So let, let me just start with this. Let's be honest. Church is broken. Church has got plenty of issues because the church is full of broken fallen sinners. Church is broken because you and I are broken, right? We're the problem. Not other people, you and me, okay? We're the problem. So we can just be really, really honest about the reality of the church, that it is broken, that we are sinful. I mean, it always shocks me when people get mad that sinners act like sinners. Like, what did you expect them to do? Yeah, I would like to think that we would behave differently. I just know that that's what's inside of us. But, but that's very, very different to understand that um, versus, versus pushing that to a different level. Because, listen, we know we're a messy bunch, and by God's grace, he's conforming us into his image. And don't misunderstand what I'm saying. Because what I'm not saying is that we can't be honest or that we can't be critical of things or that we can't have standards. If you were to show up on a Sunday or repeated Sundays and I'm not preaching the Bible, you should fire me. Okay? So I've got no problem saying that. I'm all for us having very high standards. L- let me try to illustrate this on a human level that maybe this is helpful. If you came up to me and you said, Mike, let me tell you how terrible your wife is. Let me tell you all the issues, all the flaws, all the ways that Becky is just terrible. Okay. Time out right there. (laughs) I'm a broken, fallen sinner. So if I haven't already assaulted you and we continue in the conversation, how's that going to go? It's not going to go very well, is it, right? I mean, I'll just own my sinfulness. Like, let's go outside because I want you to bleed in the parking lot, not on the carpet, okay? But, but it's not going to go well. Why? Because I love my bride. Becky's not perfect. She's closer than most, but she's not perfect. I know that. But I don't need someone who doesn't know her and love her and see her the way that I know her and love her and see her telling me how she's inadequate. So if you and I can understand that and we can embrace that on a human level, why in the world would we think that God is any different? The church is his bride. Right? When we're like, well, let me tell you all the things that's wrong with the church. God's not like, wow, I'm so impressed by your discernment. God says, man, I'm disgusted at your arrogance. Can you love broken, fallen people like I can love broken, fallen people? Because that's what I'm fired up about. See, we mock God, we rebel against God when, when, when we mock his bride. If you came and told me how terrible my wife is, I'd want nothing to do with you and God is no different. A rebellious heart mocks God and inasmuch as we look at Belshazzar and we're like, this guy's out to lunch, the reality is you and I struggle with this very same thing. So notice how the story begins to unfold. Verse 5. 
A rebellious heart mocks God. God shows up, right? God's not going to be mocked. That's what Paul tells us in Galatians. And so God's response invokes fear. Verse 5. Immediately, the fingers of a human hand appeared and wrote on the plaster of the wall of the king's palace opposite the lampstand. That's a crucial little note so that everyone could see it and read it. And the king saw the hand as it wrote. Then the king's color changed and his thoughts alarmed him. His limbs gave way and his knees knocked together. Boy, he was pretty confident a moment ago. Not so confident now, is he? And the king called loudly to bring in the enchanters, the Chaldeans, and the astrologers. And the king declared to the wise men of Babylon, Whoever reads this writing and shows me its interpretation shall be clothed with purple and have a chain of gold around his neck and shall be the third ruler in the kingdom. He's like, man, you guys got to, what does this mean? What's going on? Verse 8, all the king's wise men came in, but they could not read the writing or make known the king to the king the interpretation. Then King Belshazzar was greatly alarmed and his color changed and his lords were perplexed. I mean, in a moment, this whole story changes on a dime. So confident, so bold, so cocky and arrogant, and now like just a little wimp, knees buckling together, and like, oh, what am I going to do, right? God's response invokes fear. Why? Because God is holy, because God is powerful, because God is awesome, and we aren't. That's why. Right in a moment, this king is brought down to size. He's confronted. In this moment, the king is confronted with the awesome, terrifying reality of who God is and who he isn't. And, and here's what's fascinating. I mean, this is a pretty modest uh, way of God revealing himself, is it not? I mean, he's just got a hand writing some things on a wall. And the king's freaking out over this. And this is nothing like some of the other things that we see in the scriptures God's response invokes fear. Now, loved ones, listen, I think in a lot of ways, I think in a lot of ways, you and I have lost this deep sense of a fear of God. This sense of holy reverence and awe. That this is the almighty supreme ruler of all things that speaks words and universes come into existence. That we've lost this sense. We're, we're far too casual in our approach to God, right? So, 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 so we, we, we love that God is so easily accessible. And yet every time in the scriptures, God's presence is manifested. There is incredible fear that is, that is demonstrated by the human agents that he shows up to. And we should not miss that. Adam and Eve in the garden, right after they sinned, God showed up. What'd they do? They went and hid. Remember when we were working through Exodus, uh, the, the end of last year, beginning of this year, and, and Moses is on the mountain and, and God is literally like thunderstorming on top of the mountain. And the people are terrified. And they're like, Moses, you, you go speak to God and, and let him speak to us. But if God spoke to us, he'd kill us. And that's literally what they're saying in Exodus 20. Or, or, or how about um, Isaiah in his throne room, throne room vision? He's like, I'm ruined. He thinks God's going to kill him. Ezekiel falls on his face as though dead. Peter at the transfiguration, he's, he's like, I don't know what to say. I'm so terrified. So he just starts saying really dumb things. Uh, you've got uh, Paul on the way to Damascus, right? He falls down blind and everyone with him is freaking out about it. And then you've got the resurrected Christ in Revelation 1 and John falls down as though dead when he sees him. Right, the, 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 the presence of God, God's response, invokes fear. That's what we see throughout the scriptures. And I find it comical is probably being pretty generous, but we'll go with that. I find it comical when I hear people describing um, what their first encounter with God is going to be like. 
Oh, when I see God, I'm going to let him know, or I'm going to tell him about her, or I want to give him a piece of my mind. Let me just help you with that. When you see God, you're going to be on your face. You are not the exception to the rule that we've seen throughout all of human history. You're going to find yourself on your face. They say a picture is worth a thousand words. Uh, Rembrandt uh, actually uh, depicted this scene. Kate, can we put that picture up real quick? So I'm not saying that Rembrandt is this uh, cutting-edge theologian, but I think he pretty accurately depicts, and I like the, the guy in the background, particularly old dude, and just that, sh- that look of shock and awe on the lady next to him, just that fear of like, what is happening? A moment ago, this drunken revelry of, man, we're in charge of everything. And a hand shows up and writes some things, and now we're freaking out. God's response invokes fear. And they can't explain it. They don't know what's going on. So let me just summarize here the next few verses. In verse 10, the queen, which is really most likely his mother, the queen mother, sees what's going on and says, hey, there was this guy who a couple decades ago was just really good at interpreting dreams and visions. Let's bring him in. And she says some things with respect to his excellent spirit and knowledge and understanding. And so Belshazzar brings him in and just kind of butters him up. And verses 13, 14, 15, 16, he's like, hey, you know, I've heard you can do this stuff. And if you do, I'll give you a purple robe, make you number three. It'd be awesome. So look at verse 17 here. Right? We have a rebellious heart toward God. Starting in verse 17, we see a righteous judgment from God. So on the heels of being told all the things that, that Belshazzar would give to Daniel if he could interpret uh, what this handwriting was all about, I love this. Then Daniel answered and said before the king, let your gifts be for yourself and give your rewards to another. I don't want it. That doesn't mean a thing to me. You keep that clown suit and you keep that honor because you're going to be gone before the sun comes up tomorrow. He goes on, he says, Nevertheless, I'll read the writing to the king and make known to him the interpretation. And then starting in verse 18, we see this righteous judgment from God. In fact, let me read verses 18 through the end of the chapter here. I would encourage you to follow along with me. He says, O king, the most high God gave Nebuchadnezzar your father kingship and greatness and glory and majesty. And because of the greatness that he gave him, all peoples, nations, and languages trembled and feared before him. Whom he would, he killed. And whom he would, he kept alive. Whom he would, he raised up. And whom he would, he humbled. But when his heart was lifted up and his spirit was hardened so that he dealt proudly, he was brought down from his kingly throne and his glory was taken from him. He's like, God gave him everything he could have possibly wanted and needed. And as soon as he got out of line, God dealt with him. Verse 21 now begins to recap what we looked at last week. He was driven from among the children of mankind and his mind was made like that of a beast and his dwelling was with the wild donkeys. He was fed grass like an ox and his body was wet with the dew of heaven until he knew, okay, here it comes again, that the most high God rules the kingdom of mankind and sets it over whom he will. And now Daniel begins to get personal. And you, his son, the predecessor, Belshazzar, you have not humbled your heart, though you knew all this. 
but you've lifted up yourself against the Lord of heaven. And the vessels of his house have been brought in before you, and you and your lords, your wives, and your concubines have drunk wine from them. And you have praised the gods of silver and gold, of bronze, iron, wood, and stone, which do not see or hear or know. But the God in whose hand is your breath, and whose are all your ways, you have not honored. That is a stern, harsh rebuke. He's like, you want to know about the hand? Let me tell you about the hand. Verse 24. Then from his presence, he's speaking of God, the hand was sent and this writing was inscribed. And this is the writing that was inscribed, Mene, Mene, Tekel, and Parson. Here's what it means. This is the interpretation of the matter. Mene, God has numbered the days of your kingdom and brought it to an end. Tekel, you've been weighed in the balances and found wanting. Perez, your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and the Persians. There's zero good news in that for the king. And yet in verse 29... Belshazzar gave the command and Daniel was clothed with purple. A chain of gold was put around his neck and a proclamation was made about him that he should be the third ruler in the kingdom. And that very night, Belshazzar, the the Chaldean king, was killed. And Darius the Mede received the kingdom being about 62 years old. It's a righteous judgment from God. This is God saying, I'm going to do with wicked, rebellious, hard-hearted, stubborn, obstinate, stiff-necked people what I have the right to do. It's not cute. It's not funny. There's no laughing matter. And it must be treated with the seriousness with which we see in the text. A righteous judgment from God. Three things with respect to that. Here's the first. Look at verses 18 through 21. Is that God graciously gives us good gifts. God graciously gives you and I good gifts. What he says in verse 18, O King, the Most High God, Circle that next word, gave Nebuchadnezzar. Look at all that he gave him. Kingship, greatness, glory, and majesty. And then he begins to press in on the greatness. Because of the greatness that he, God, gave him, everybody feared him. They did what he wanted. They were obedient. But when when he got out of line, God dealt with him. God gave him good gifts. God gives you and I good gifts. Loved one, can you identify the fact that all that you have is from God? That God has been insanely gracious, insanely generous and kind to you and has given you so many good things. God graciously gives good gifts. I think you could even argue in verses 18 through 21 that you see a, a miniature form of the gospel playing out here. And God is good and generous. right? God gave Nebuchadnezzar all these things. That Nebuchadnezzar does what we all do, that we distort what God has given to us through sin. Right, he thinks more of himself than is right. Sin leads us to a place where God has to deal with us. So he's humbled him and he's thinking that he's a, a cow hanging out with donkeys eating grass. And then instead of destroying us, God restores us. But all of this is driving to this point that, that, that Daniel has driven repeatedly through the book up to this point and will continue to drive. That the most high God rules the kingdom of men. God is the judge. God is in charge. God sits on the throne. And I would suggest to you that the greatest gift that God can give to you is to recognize that God is in fact in charge and that he is ruling, that you aren't. And even if he has to move you to some low places, even if he has to humble you and bring you down, that it's God's kindness to you that he would patiently endure with you. And to bring us to that place instead of destroying us. 
God graciously gives us good gifts. Can you identify God's good and gracious gifts in your life? Right? Can you identify those? Can you see them? Can you point them out and touch them? And if you find yourself being brought low, just ask yourself, is God using that to bring you back to him? Is God using that to keep you humble? Is God using that to help you see that the most high rules the kingdom of men? God graciously gives us good gifts. Notice secondly, in verse two, uh, 22 and 23, that God rightfully judges our rebellious heart. Right? God rightfully judges our rebellious heart. So notice now he gets really pointed and personal with Belshazzar and speaks directly to him. Right? And you, his son, let's talk about you, Belshazzar, and by application, loved ones, right, own this for yourself. Right? God, help us that, that God would be personal with us. You have not humbled your heart, even though you knew all of this. And so before I ever tell you the vision, right, Daniel's going to just give this really firm rebuke. You haven't humbled your heart. You didn't humble your heart, Belshazzar. You knew everything that happened. You knew all the ways that God had worked. You knew how God had moved Nebuchadnezzar through that process. You knew that God was all powerful, that in a moment he could humble you and bring you low. And yet... You thought that you were above that. You thought you were above God. You thought you knew better than what God thought. Loved one, do you think that you're above God? Do you think that you know better than what God thinks? Do you presume to sit on his throne and to make decisions? Do you think that you can reject God's call and command and arrive at a different conclusion than than Belshazzar or anyone else in the scriptures for that matter? This is a warning. It's a warning. We should have humble hearts before God. Why? Because God continues to drive home the reality that he's the most high who rules and not us. So God help us, right? God help us that we would humble ourselves before him. We would realize that our life is his, that our time is his, that that the resources and the talents and all that God gives us, they're ultimately his, and that we would live submitted and subjected to the king. And have you humbled your heart? And then look at verse 23. Not only did he not humble his heart, but you've lifted yourself up against the Lord of heaven. Then he tells him how he's done this. The vessels of his house have been brought in before you, and you and your lords, your wives, and your concubines have drunk wine from them. And you have praised the gods of silver and gold, of bronze, iron, wood, and stone, which, hey, just in case you're wondering, Belshazzar, they don't see, hear, or know, but the God in whose hand is your breath and whose are all your ways you've not honored. Loved ones, have you lifted yourself up against God? And instead of humbling himself, he's going to posture himself literally in opposition to God. I'm going to stand across from God and I'm going to oppose him. I mean, consider for a moment just the audacity of what unfolded in the first part of chapter 5. I'm going to take this cup, this vessel, that was reserved solely to be used in worship of the Lord, that was set apart, that was consecrated for that purpose and for that purpose only. And I'm going to get my friends together and we're going to get loaded together drinking out of these things. And just think of the arrogance that has to be implied and understood that I can do this. 
And all the while I'm going to do this, I'm going to praise the God of gold and silver and bronze and iron, wood and stone. And I'm going to ignore the very God who gives me life. I mean, it's insanity. It's utter foolishness. But this is true of any person who would attempt to position themselves in opposition or to posture themselves in opposition to God. And I'll just tell you that Belshazzar wasn't the first person to do it and he won't be the last person to do it. In fact, God's word tells us in Romans 1 that we're going to see this. This is what you and I do. And in Romans 1, Paul tells us this. He says that the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. I don't want to know what's true of God. I'm, I'm going to push against what's true of God. And Paul goes on and he says this, for although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and the birds and the animals and creeping things. We're going to trade the creator and we're going to double down on the creation. Items that were meant to help us see the greatness and the grandeur and the splendor of God and to elevate our worship of God now become the object of our worship. And so Paul goes on in his argument uh, to the church in Rome around this idea in the beginning of chapter 2. He says this, Do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience? Not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? He's like saying, he's, he's saying to the church, you know why God hasn't destroyed you? Because he's kind to you. But he's calling you to repent, not to continue in sin. And so listen to what Paul says in the next verse in Romans 2.5. He says, but because of your hard and impenitent heart, you're storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. He's saying God's going to pronounce judgment on all of us. And you can live in the repentance and the grace of Jesus, or you can stand there on your own and go, I'm going to shoulder up under this. God pronounces judgment. That's exactly what he does here in Daniel 5 as well. God pronounces judgment on sinful people, which is all people, just in case you're wondering. Verse 24 through 27. Here's the actual interpretation of the vision and simultaneously the pronouncement of God's judgment. It's like God sends his hand, writes these things on the wall. Here's what it means. God's numbered your days. Brought it to an end. You've been weighed in the balances and found wanting. Oh, and your kingdom's divided and given to the Medes and Persians. Anything else, Belshazzar? Belshazzar, are we done? It's like you are going to be held to account right now. You got to pay up. The toll is due. The bill is due. Oh, by the way, you don't inadequate funds. You got insufficient funds. You can't pay this. You're indebted to God, and uh uh-oh, you can't make it right. Now listen to me, listen to me, listen to me. This isn't just the king's predicament, is it? This is every person's predicament. Anyone who's ever lived, lives in this predicament. That my sin puts me into debt with God. When I reject God, when I rebel against God, when I say to God, I'm going to do it my way, not your way, uh, so get out of my way, I am indebted to God. It's true for all of us. Romans speaks about none of us being righteous. Ephesians tells us that we're all dead in our sin. And so it's not just the king who finds himself in this place. And in one sense, there is this hopelessness and this desperation as we consider our situation. Is there not? 
And yet what I would ask you to consider is to look ahead from Daniel 5 to another king who ironically enough will also take a cup and will drink down what is in that cup. But it will be very, very differently than the way that Belshazzar drinks from the cup. More specifically, I'm thinking of Jesus in Luke 22, just a matter of hours before his death on the cross. And he's praying to the Father and he says, if you're, if you're willing, remove this cup from me. Now the cup that Jesus is referring to, and oftentimes in the scriptures when we see this idea of cup, it's synonymous with God's wrath. God's punishment for or judgment for our sinful, wicked, and rebellious defiance and treason toward him. So the pronouncement of judgment that we see in Daniel 5 echoes forward to the person of Jesus who once and for all will take the cup of God's wrath and will drink it fully, completely, in totality, satisfying the wrath of God that you and I so rightfully deserve and yet we're freed from. See, this is the good news of the gospel. Not that you and I are good people. Not that you and I can work hard enough and earn God's favor. I can be good enough and then God will love me. That will never happen. That will never happen. The, the good news of the gospel is that God is a good God who even though we deserve his judgment, he chooses to place his wrath on Christ. Now make no mistake, the king, King Belshazzar, got exactly what he deserved in Daniel chapter five. And what you and I need to understand, what you and I need to know is that our sin, that our wickedness, that our rebellion, our rejection of God, that we deserve that same wrath. We deserve the same thing that the King got. I, I understand that our sin may not be the same, but it is equally grievous. And I think of the Psalmist in Psalm 130, who says, if you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? Not me, not you, not anyone. And yet I love what he says right after that. He says, but with you, there is forgiveness that you may be feared. Right? There's forgiveness in the person of Jesus. Right? When we surrender our lives to Christ, we don't get what we deserve. Instead of God's wrath, we receive God's grace. We're covered and clothed with the righteousness of Christ. Think about that, loved ones. When God looks at you right now, if you're in Christ, what does he see? Tell me. He sees the righteousness of Jesus. He does not see your failure from today or this morning. He does not see your failure this week. He does not see your re rebellion over the last month. All the ways that you have failed to live up to God's perfect standard. He sees the righteousness of Christ. See, God judges our arrogance and our rebellion against him. That judgment's going to fall in one of two places. It will rightfully fall on you or it will graciously fall upon Christ who will bear our wrath in God's place. So let me just speak briefly to three different groups of people that may be sitting in the room right now. Maybe you're sitting here today and you are not a believer. You have never trusted in Christ for salvation. You have never given your life to Jesus. You've never at any point said, I'm going to surrender my, my life right now to Christ. Hear me, hear me, hear me. Your rebellion will not go unchecked forever. 
a time and a day is coming, probably far sooner than you think or imagine, where you're going to stand before the throne and God is going to call you to account. And I would implore you, plead with you to surrender yourself to Jesus, to give yourself fully and completely over to him. Like, Mike, I, I wouldn't even know where to start with that. Come grab me, grab the person you came with. Like, I came on my own. Praise God. Thank you for doing that. Grab the person next to you and be like, help me with this. Secondly, some of you may be sitting in this room, and whether it's known or unknown, the truth is you're living in rebellion. Yeah, you submitted your life to Jesus. Yes, you surrendered to him. But, but truth is, in your heart of hearts, you're living for you. You could tell the stories, you know the Bible verses, maybe more so than most of the people sitting in here today, and yet you're doing your own thing, and I would say to you, come back. Return to that gracious Father who so kindly put your wrath on Jesus' shoulders for you. And finally, for the final group, for those of you in here living in Christ, and of course that's not perfectly or not without issue, I would tell you to simply marvel and wonder and celebrate the beauty of what Christ has done for you. To just let the richness of the gospel that I so rightfully deserved to find myself in the same place as this king just outed and ousted instantly by God. And yet instead, I am redeemed by God through the person of Jesus. We would just marvel at that, that we would celebrate that.